Our scripture reading is going to be from Acts 8 this morning, 26 to 40. So while you're turning there in your Bible, or if you have the Bible app, my name is Becky Williamson. Uh, my husband Micah and I have raised our four kids here over these 20 years at Crosspoint. And one of my favorite places to serve over that time has been on the teaching team in the nursery. And so you may or may not know that while the big kids gather uh, for lesson back there, there's a teacher that goes into the baby room and then into the toddler room. And um, we gather up the kids with the help of the caregivers. We sit on our little carpet squares. And each Sunday, um, each kid gets a chance to hold a little Bible like this one. That child is missing this right now. That's what's happening. Uh, we open the Bible and find Jesus' picture inside because the Bible is all about Jesus. We have a couple of special songs that we sing, and then we have a Bible lesson. And so it's just a treasure to me that every age literally gathered in this space has the Word of God that can be in their hand each Sunday, uh, that we have this in our own heart language, and that we can open it together. So let's hear God's Word. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? So he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared, appeared in Azotus, and he was traveling and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Cross Point. Good to be with you this morning. We're going to dive right in so we can get this plane landed. <laughs> Christopher Wright says this, blessing the nations is the declared mission of God. And that is the reason why he calls his people into existence to be the vehicle of that mission of God in the historical world of nations. You'll hear it often said here at Crosspoint that living on mission is a vital part of our gospel identity. It's not something that we get to just pick and choose as it is something that we are and it is also something that we do. It's not an option. When you come to faith in Christ Jesus, we are all missionaries. Yes, we have people that are full-time vocational missionaries that choose to go across the sea that we support financially, but we are just as much a missionary in the Eureka School District, Nussbaum Trucking, State Farm, wherever the Lord has you, your, your, your gospel identity says that you are a missionary. Acts 1.8, we read it earlier as we started this series, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Lord says, you will be my witnesses. Not you can be or you ought to be. He says, you will be my witnesses. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, 
Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When Jesus gives this, he isn't just giving it to a certain group of people. He is saying to each and every one of us in in this place and, and around the world that proclaim the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior of our life, that we are to go and to make disciples. It's not an option. And so much of what we consider mission in the American church today has often been reduced to events and activities. Now, I want to clarify that by not saying that those things are wrong. But what this passage is addressing for us today is the importance of the Spirit's work and our responsibility in participating in this mission to help God to help build God's kingdom on a daily, personal level. Mission can be lived in the realm of larger groups as we saw in Samaria. You recall Philip is just getting done sharing the gospel in Samaria to a large group of people and God is doing amazing work in Samaria. But also in this passage, it shows us that in smaller, more personal settings, and it should be with people that we encounter in everyday life, Mission should be a way of life. And it may require extraordinary means, as we're going to hear this morning, and as we see in the passage. It may entail ordinary means, but it is always dependent upon the Lord, the Spirit, and His Word. John Piper says it this way. I think the answer is that the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch teaches us that one of the ways that God uses to evangelize the world I say one of the ways that God uses because it's clear from the book of Acts that a lot of evangelism was done without an angel of the Lord having to tell the Christians to do it. It's what one does if one loves Jesus and loves people. You tell the good news. Jesus already gave us a command to be about it in the Great Commission, so you don't have to have an angel of the Lord to tell you to do it any more than you need an angel of the Lord to tell you not to do it. But, on the other hand, we may be more in danger of making the other mistake, namely of thinking that we can do all God wants done by simply evangelizing according to our own planning. So God includes in his inspired word stories and teachings that equip us for another kind of good work, not just wise and prayerful planning on the basis of circumstances we can see, but also listening responsibly to the Spirit when he may want to tell us to do something that we might never think of doing through our own planning. Like, go down to the desert road that leads to Gaza and wait for further instructions. Philip could not have computed from scripture and circumstances that that's where the spirit was moving next. So the scriptures are wonderfully sufficient here. They protect us from the error of thinking that the only way God guides us in good work is by reasoning and planning from circumstances and principles, though this is good. And they show us that there are works God may lead us to do by means of extraordinary guidance. I count at least 18 instances of this extraordinary guidance in the book of Acts scattered among all the most ordinary ways of making decisions in evangelistic strategy. And since there is no teaching anywhere in the New Testament that says that this work of the Lord is limited to the time of the book of Acts, we should assume that one of God's ways today of building his church is to give directions to his people in extraordinary ways as well as more ordinary ones. Now, this is an area of growth in my life. I'm a good old Baptist boy, right? Grew up in the Baptist church all my life. And one of the things that we did oftentimes growing up is we negated the power of the Spirit of God. We tried to put them in a little box and we tried to make it so, you know, there wasn't a lot of extraordinary. And in this passage, we see guided by the word of God, guided by the spirit of God, an extraordinary story. And so this is good and challenging for me. And Philip has just been involved with taking the gospel, as I said earlier, to a large group in Samaria. And what's interesting is that the church, it says, is being ravaged by Saul. But instead of hiding and retreating, the gospel is going forth to the uttermost 
parts of the earth. You see, in the midst of great suffering, the promise of Acts 1.8 that says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world is beginning to come true. Because in the middle of this persecution, Philip and those who are taking the gospel aren't hiding away. They're not shying away. They're actually going forth. And we see that in Acts with Samaria. And now we're going to see that Philip is being led by the Lord to take the message of the gospel to an unexpected Ethiopian eunuch in an unexpected place with an unexpected conversation. Philip didn't plan this. Philip is used by the Spirit to see the eunuch converted. And as some church, early church historians have shared, that most likely the, the salvation of this eunuch was to take the message of Christ to the nation of Africa. And so the gospel being spread out to the outermost parts of the world. And so this morning, you may be sitting here and you may be thinking, I couldn't do what Philip did. I don't know how to hear the prompting of God. I don't have the resources or the biblical knowledge to help lead someone to Christ. That's, 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 that's Dave Steinbeck's job. That's Stephen Souter's job. That's Dave Wolf's job. That's Ken Heinrich's job. I can't do that. The spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you? Yes, you can. I don't have the time or the energy to invest in others with my already busy life and schedule. And we'll address that a little bit later. So how does Philip respond to this ordinary call of mission? And how should you and I respond to God's extraordinary call to be on mission to those around us? So our big idea this morning is this. Living on spirit-empowered mission requires us to be surrendered, spirit-led, story-formed, and submissive. Let me say that again. Living on spirit-empowered mission requires us to be surrendered, spirit-led, story-formed, and submissive. Let's start with surrendered. As we see in the text here, it's not just a message that's drummed up by Philip, but a very clear way to describe the guidance that is given to Philip. It says in the passage right away, the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now, what do we know about Philip? We're reminded that back when, when the, there were many complaining about how some of the widows were being treated in Acts chapter 5, they selected seven men that were full of the Spirit, and one of those seven men was Philip. And again, Philip is, Saul is ravaging the church, is going, and he's taking the message of the gospel to Samaria. And so we know that Philip has surrendered his life to Christ. He's a follower of Christ. And the angel, the messenger, there's different debates on this, but the, the reality is this. The Lord tells him to rise and to go. Go to the south to a road down from Jerusalem to Gaza and into the desert. It's most likely noontime. It's the time where you don't want to be out in the middle of the desert. It's hot. It's uncommon for travel there. Most people aren't traveling at high noon in the middle of the desert. The desert is also another unlikely place for interaction. But the point is this, brothers and sisters, where the Lord leads and calls us to is not always the most glamorous place. It's hard and sometimes it's barren. But it's the best place to be because we're in the middle of God's will. There was great revival happening in Samaria, though, and Philip could have easily said to the Lord, he could have been like, look, Lord, you're doing an amazing thing here. I want to stay here. I want to see things finish out. I want to keep, keep growing and teaching and equipping the church. He could have very easily said, no, I'm not going to go. But what does he do? It says he rose and he went. He surrendered. He didn't hesitate. He didn't question it. He didn't hide in fear. He was surrendered to the mission of God because Philip knew God knew best. See, Jay Adams says it this way, God's providence often diverges from our ideas about what to do. And we must be willing to obey God's word even when it doesn't make sense to us. Faith believes that God always makes sense, even when we don't understand how. 
I love that. Lord, this doesn't make sense. You're sending me into the middle of the desert at, a, at a, just an unearthly time, and I don't even know who I'm going to meet there. That's not Philip's attitude. His attitude was like that of Paul, where he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It requires a life that's surrendered, brothers and sisters. Number two, it requires a life that is spirit-led. Luke tells us that Philip is being sent to an Ethiopian eunuch. Let's talk a little bit about the Ethiopian eunuch. He's most likely a Gentile. And in those days, a eunuch was one who was castrated. They were outcasts in the mind of the Jews. Certain commentators argue about that as far as the, the, the castration part. But he was wealthy and in, and, and in a position of power in, under Candace, who was the queen of Ethiopia. He was known as a God-fearer, a Gentile who worshipped Israel's God but had not become a full convert, which would explain why he goes to Jerusalem to worship. Why would an Ethiopian be traveling to Jerusalem to worship? He would have been known as probably a proselyte, a person who had left former practices or homeland to embrace a new way of life or country, especially used of a Gentile conforming to the customs of a Pharisee or a Sadducee. And so what God does is he leads this Ethiopian eunuch to Jerusalem to worship and allows this man, divinely allows this man, because he wasn't allowed to be able to worship in the temple being a eunuch. But he allows this man to be able to obtain the book of Isaiah, to buy the, the book of Isaiah, which would have been at great cost. For the purpose of Philip's encounter in the desert and eventually leading him to a saving relationship with Christ. As one commentator says, the Spirit specifically calls Philip to proclaim the gospel to a person in a different geographical location and a different cultural and social identity, an educated and politically influential man who lives in another country in a society with different values and traditions. You see, brothers and sisters, here's the beauty of it. The gospel is for all people. When the Spirit of God is at work, the gospel does not discriminate. The gospel impacts the rich and the poor. The gospel impacts people of all ethnicities. It impacts the old and the young. It doesn't discriminate. So God is leading by the divine leading of the Spirit for Philip to impact this Ethiopian eunuch, who in the eyes of the Jews would have been an outcast. In his own country, he was in a position of power. And so what does the Spirit say in the text? It says, in verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. You see, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit among many is that the Spirit gives guidance. I can imagine Philip standing out in the desert and he's kind of probably thinking, hmm, I'm here in the desert. It's hot. What, Lord? And that the Spirit tells him to go to the chariot is actually audible. What is our role in getting that guidance, brothers and sisters? What does it mean for us to practically be spirit-led in our lives, in our leadership, and in our disciple-making? It means throughout the day, in the moment, we need to be asking the Spirit for guidance, for help, ideas, wisdom, discernment, words to speak. Lord, how can you use the Word of God today, your Spirit, to be able to speak into my life to guide me? How can you use circumstances with the Word of God with the Spirit to be able to guide me? How can you use my community group and people of God that are seeking God together that can come and that can speak gospel truth into my life, that can help guide me through the leading of the Spirit together?
basically how to think, act, and speak all day. Do we do that, brothers and sisters? I'm in a situation, what is the first thing that Dave Wolf does? Dave Wolf runs to, boy, how can I figure this out? How can I do this? How can I use ingenuity and my training and, and my power and my resources to be able to fix it rather than going to the Holy Spirit and saying, Holy Spirit, show me through God's word, through people that are seeking the Lord together, my community group, people that I can go to and say, listen, let's go to the word of God together. Let's pray together. Let's seek the Lord together. Would you help me in making a decision? Help me in this situation. We should be asking the Spirit for help with details in our lives like people we're caring for and we're discipling, leaders we're developing, hard conversations we're having. Are you husbands sitting there with your wives and you're having a hard conversation? And how many of us actually stop and just say, you know, wait a second here. Let's stop and let's ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. Rather than running to the spirit of Dave Wolf to guide me. <laughs> because guess what's going to fail every single time? the spirit of Dave Wolf. But for me to be able to look at Jess and to be able to say, you know what, look, it's hard right now. Emotions are running. Let's stop. Let's pray. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to guide us, to remind us of the truth of God's words so that we can move forward in this conversation in a God-honoring way. How about people we're counseling? People say it all the time. You know, you're counseling somebody. Well, you should go see the pastor. I love Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, because Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, says if you have the Spirit of God living inside of you and you are pursuing the Lord, guess, guess who's a counselor? Austin Lewandowski is. Michael Williamson is. Brenna Stork is. It's not just the pastor's job. We have the Spirit of God, the Word of God living in us. We have the Holy Spirit who gives us guidance. Lord, I, I am struggling with this person. I need you to help me. Give me guidance. Not worldly guidance, gospel guidance. Non-Christians we're spending time with and gospel conversations that we're having, decisions we're making, things we're struggling with, how we're spending our time and our money. The Lord tells us that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to guide us. And so what does Philip do? The Spirit tells him, go, and Philip runs to him. One commentator says, as important and helpful as strategies and methods and planning are, in the task of the missionary proclamation and the evangelistic outreach, Christians need to take care not to miss the promptings of God's spirit to initiate spontaneous conversations in unforeseen circumstances that some might deem even inappropriate. Do we rely on the spirit of God through his word, through prayer, through other gospel community members, through quiet and solitude, to lead and guide us. This summer, Jess and I had the opportunity to listen to a book by Nick Ripkin called The Insanity of God. You may think, boy, that's a weird title for a book. Nick Ripkin and his family were missionaries, I believe, to Somalia. So the first half of the book talks about their missionary journey and the, the, the working of the Spirit through, through difficult circumstances and God's Word. And then the second half of the book he changes kind of his vocation. He goes around the world and he, he, he interviews people that have gone through great suffering and great trial to, for the gospel to be, to be shared. And as I was thinking about this message, I remembered a story that was in the book. And so it's a little bit long, so I hope that you will indulge me. Okay, let me set it up real quick and then there's a specific section that I want to read. So in this chapter, he talks about he's getting ready to plan a trip to like Bangkok, Thailand, Laos, and he's going to go and meet with different people um, and hear their stories about persecution and how the church is growing and how the Spirit's at work. And so he gets this email from this European doctor out of the blue that says, I think you need to come to such and such a place right now. And so what Nick Ripkin does is he, it's not his real name, it's actually his pseudonym for the book, but that doesn't matter. He writes back and he says, look, I already have this trip planned. He goes, I will come to see you next year. 
So he begins to start this trip, and he does a few things, and then he gets back to Bangkok. He gets a second email from this European doctor who says, look, I think you need to come to such and such a place right now. Well, now he's a little annoyed, and he writes back a little bit rudely, and he says, look, I am not coming to see you until next year. I am going to this place. He's getting ready to go to this place, and all of a sudden he gets this email that says that all 18 pastors that you are going to interview at this time have been in prison, so you better not come because if you come, you're going to be in this country for a very long time, which means you're going to get arrested. And so Nick, Nick Ripkin thinks, okay, that's interesting, Lord. What are you doing? So he heads back to Bangkok. He gets a third email from the European doctor saying, you need to come to this country right now. He writes back very rudely and says, I am not coming to your country. Stop bothering me. I will come see you next year. I'm planning for my next destination. He gets to the next, he's getting ready to leave for his next destination, gets a phone call. All the pastors he was supposed to meet are in a very bad car accident. The other group of pastors he was supposed to meet get very sick. And the other ones are under surveillance, which means don't come because you'll probably get arrested. He gets back to Bangkok, fourth email. You need to come right now. Now he's beginning to, to sense the leading of the Spirit. Wouldn't you think? Right? And he calls up the doctor and he says, I'm so sorry, forgive me. I'm not listening to the Spirit. And he heads off. He lands in this country that he is at. And standing behind the doctor are five men dressed up in Muslim gear, Muslim dress. And he walks up to this European doctor and he says to them, who are these guys? And the doctor looks at him and says, I have absolutely no idea. You don't know who they are? And he goes, no. And the doctor goes, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm handing them off to you. Well, now Nick Ripkin is thinking, I'm in serious trouble. So he starts getting to the airport and he's like walking briskly and these guys are following him and he's, all he's thinking about is get me out of this country, I'm getting home. Till finally, one of the men says to him, we are followers of Jesus. And let me read the rest of the story for you. As Paul Harvey says, and now for the rest of the story. He says, the men followed me and they tugged on my clothes trying to get me to stop and I tried my best to ignore them. Finally, one of them said in broken English, sir, stop, please stop, we are followers of Jesus. I immediately stopped and turned to listen to what they had to say. The quick summary of their story rang true and against my better judgment but sensing the hand of God on our meeting, I went with my five unnamed friends to a room that they had rented in a nearby town. When we got there, we sat together on the floor in an unfurnished apartment, and they simply looked at me and smiled. They seemed perfectly content to wait, and I had no idea what was expected of me. I shared briefly about myself. Though my words were more guarded than usual, I talked a little about where I had been, how I had been traveling around the world, and the research that I had done, and why I wanted to talk to believers in different parts of the world, and I even speculated a little on why I might have ended up in this tiny corner of the world. One of the men spoke English, and he translated my words to the others, and after he finished, all five of the men began to laugh. I was so confused, and I wanted to know what they thought was so funny. They shook their heads and smiled and said to me, you may think you know why you came here, but we would like to tell you why you are really here. They briefly sketched their own personal stories. They had each had dreams or visions that had raised spiritual questions and prompted a long search for answers. They had each miraculously found a copy of the Bible to study. And after reading through the entire book several times, they had each on their own decided to follow Jesus. They had each been rejected and disowned by their families, and eventually they had to flee their country. They made their way across the border to the small border town, and somehow they found each other and they realized that all they shared, that they all shared the same newfound faith in Christ. They didn't really know what to do next, but they instinctively started meeting in this tiny third floor apartment, and they met daily from midnight until 3 a.m. in the morning, hoping that no one would notice them. They read the word of God secretly and tried to provide spiritual support and encouragement for one another. Two months earlier, they explained, they had started praying this prayer, oh God, we don't know how to do this. We grew up 
We trained as Muslims. We know how to be Muslim in a Muslim environment. We even know how to be communists in a Muslim environment. But we do not know how to follow Jesus in a Muslim environment. Please, Lord, send us someone. Send us someone who knows about persecution, someone who knows what other believers are doing, someone who can encourage and teach us. Chills were running up and down my spine as they explained what happened when they had been together in the same rented upper room earlier that very day. At 1.30 this morning, we were praying when the Holy Spirit told us to go to the airport. The Holy Spirit told us that we were to go to the first white man who got off the plane. The Holy Spirit told us that he was sending this man to answer our questions. So they said as they smiled at me again, this is why you are here. Now you can do what God has called you here to do before you start teaching us. However, we have one other question for you. Where have you been and what have you been doing for these last two months? Sounds a little bit like Jonah, doesn't it? I shook my head in embarrassment. I confessed, well, I guess I've been being disobedient. I tried my best for weeks not to come here at all. Please forgive me. And they did, and we had a great time of teaching and learning from each other over the next few days. And I listened to each other's personal testimonies of faith and asked them specific questions about the details of how and when they encountered Jesus and became his followers. One of the five men told me I dreamed about a blue book. I was driven, consumed really by the message of the dream. Look for this book. The dream said, read this Bible. I began a secret search, but I could not find a book like that anywhere in my country. Then one day I walked into a Quranic bookshop and saw the sea of green books lining the walls. And I noticed a book of different color on the shelf in the back of the store. So I walked back there and pulled out a thick blue volume to discover that it was a Bible. It was published in my own national language, and I actually bought a Bible in the Islamic bookstore, took it home, read it five times, and that's how I came to know Jesus. Another one told me I dreamed about finding Jesus, but I didn't even know how or where to look. Then one day I was walking through the market when a man that I had never seen before came up to me in the crowd, and he said, the Holy Spirit told me to give you this book, and he handed me a Bible and disappeared into the crowd. I never saw him again, but I read the Bible he gave me three times from cover to cover, and that's how I came to follow, know and follow Jesus. And each one of the men told me a different variation of the same story, and each one of them had come across a Bible in some unusual, miraculous way, and each one had read the gospel story of Jesus, and each one had decided to follow him. And after hearing their stories, I felt drawn to open the book of Acts. With an entirely different point of view, I began to read the story of Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. For the first time in my life, as I read that passage, I wonder how in the world did an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a man of color, and a foreigner get a copy of a scroll containing the book of Isaiah? In New Testament days, even partial copies of scripture were handwritten on scrolls, and they were very rare and very expensive. What's more, the Jews had strict rules and restrictions about who could even be allowed to touch the Holy Scriptures and where the scriptures could be open and read. By all accounts, this Ethiopian official would not have been allowed to touch a copy of Scripture or to open it or read it or possess it. Yet Philip finds this Ethiopian man in a chariot on a desert in Gaza, pouring and puzzling over Isaiah 53. When I read the story on this night, the fact that this Ethiopian official was actually going home with a copy of a portion of the Jewish Bible suddenly seemed extraordinary and unlikely. In fact, it was extraordinary and unlikely that I blurted out a question, where did this man get a copy of your word? In reply, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart, I have been doing this for a long time. If you will take my word out into the world, I will get it into the right hands. What a marvelous, miraculous, and mysterious partnership this is. We have no clear understanding of what sent the official of the Ethiopian queen on a spiritual pilgrimage to Israel. Something or someone did. How did that man miraculously get this hand, in his hands the part of the word of God? And why was he on the empty stretch of desert road at that very moment reading that particular chapter of Isaiah? I had to admit that I did not know the answers to any of these questions. 
Yet now, after being among believers in persecution, I was pretty sure that God must have had to work a number of small miracles for that encounter between the Ethiopian man and Philip to take place. In God's marvelous timing, this encounter happened in exactly the right place and at exactly the right time. And almost 2,000 years later, the exact same thing happened when I walked off the plane to meet five Muslim men who had miraculously found Jesus. I had never intended to be an answer to prayer that day, but evidently, I was. Reading from the book of Acts that evening was a completely new experience. Two thoughts stayed in my mind. This is what God did then, and this is what God does now. Suddenly, my modern world didn't look all that different than the world of the Bible. Brothers and sisters, the opportunity to be used by the Spirit of God, if we ask and we're surrendered, to be able to be used by Him in the most inopportune places with the most inopportune people. The third essential is that we are story formed. Philip hears the Ethiopian reading the scriptures. He runs up to the chariot. And three important essentials. The first is that spirit-empowered mission requires us to be in close proximity. Now you may say, but wait a second, there's people that get saved all around the world that I don't have to be in close proximity. Yes, these, we heard it in the story. We heard these five men that come to salvation because the Spirit of God is drawing them to himself using the Word of God, but they also prayed for someone to come and to walk alongside them and to teach them and to equip them and to help them. Close proximity, it requires us to get close to people, to be able to hear their stories, their questions, and their worldview, and it requires us to get up close. And we see that with Philip. He hears that. Spirit-empowered mission, secondly, requires us to ask good questions. Philip doesn't just sit in there and he's like, hmm, how do I get into this? He walks up to the man and what does he say? In the scriptures it says he walks up to him and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And what does the man, the Ethiopian eunuch, reply? He says, how can I unless someone guides me? And Philip is invited up into the chariot and he goes through this passage in Isaiah 53 referring to Christ. He was oppressed, afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that was before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And the eunuch says, is he talking, is this, is this about the prophet or is this about someone else? And the third part of that essential of the gospel explanation is that you and I need to know God's story ourselves. I love this because it says that Philip opens his mouth and he begins with the scripture. I can't help but think that the same thing was going on that we see on the road to Emmaus when the, the men are walking alongside and it says that Jesus beginning with Moses and the prophets, walks all the way through. See, in modern Christianity, we want to just run to Jesus. We want to run to the gospel. Our community groups, most of them are going through the story-formed way right now, which is the story of God, which is great because it gives us a foundation of creation, rebellion, promise, redemption, church and restoration so that when I go to the scriptures and I'm reading in Chronicles, I'm understanding that that's within the time of the promise and that these people are waiting for the coming Messiah to come and to deliver them. The gospels, when we read about Christ coming and paying the penalty and being our sacrificial atonement, paying the penalty of our sin so that by grace through faith, you and I can be made right with God and we can become adopted into his family. And then we have the epistles that, that show us that this is who you are in Christ Jesus and because of who you are in Christ Jesus, this is then how you should be living. And then we know that a greater day is coming and revelation and restoration when we will go and we will never experience sin and death anymore and we will have a new heaven and a new earth and so what does Philip do he begins with the scripture and he tells him the good news about Jesus one commentator says this the good news of Jesus Christ cannot truly 
can, cannot be true. Sorry, the good news of Jesus Christ cannot be truly proclaimed if Scripture has not been truly understood. Since the gospel does not consist of philosophical or religious truths and ethical maxims, but of the historical reality of God's intervention in the history of mankind in Jesus the Messiah and Savior. Brothers and sisters, we need to know the Word of God. You know, before coming to Crosspoint, I taught at a Christian school. And one of the things that broke my heart is not just how many students within this Christian school didn't know the word of God, but how many parents do not know the word of God. We need to get back to being story-formed people, the true story, God's word, that informs our worldview, that informs our way of life, that informs how we live and talk and act and think and interact with each other and spend our money and spend our time and all of life. The last essential is that we are submissive. What I love about this story is that you notice in there there's no verse 37. It was not included in some of the earlier manuscripts. But it says after Philip explains the scriptures in verse 37, it talks about Let me read it for you. I'm having trouble seeing today. So, If you believe with all your heart, you may, he replied. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What is he referring to? Because he must have, in that conversation, explained to the Ethiopian eunuch that after salvation, after surrendering your life to Christ, it means that you are submissive. You are to live a life of obedience. You are to follow the commands of the Lord And one of the things that we see here is that the eunuch looks at Philip and he says, there's water here. What prevents me from being baptized? I love that question. Not, yeah, baptism, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know if I really need to do that. I was baptized as a child, that's good enough. I don't need to be baptized. Why do I need to be baptized? Brothers and sisters, if the Ethiopian eunuch says, what prevents me from being baptized? It's pretty important. Submissiveness to the Lord's command. There are two things that the Lord asks us to do as a a church family. Baptism, communion. At, at, at Crosspoint, baptism is, is very, very, very important. Why? Because it's an outward declaration of an inward transformation. It's the picture of, of me declaring to this church family that I have died, right? I've died in my trespasses and sins, but I've been raised into new life because of Jesus Christ. But Matthew 28 also gives us an insight into what baptism is all about. See, baptism isn't just for the the one being baptized. It's also a reminder for each and every one of us. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why do we say that? Just just to throw it in there? Just to make it like, you know, baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? (laughs) No, when Dave says that, Kent says that, whoever's baptizing you, it is a reminder of your gospel identity. God is our Father. If you are in Christ, God is your Father, which if God is our Father, that makes us what? What? What are we? Brothers and sisters, we are children, but we are family. You remember Sister Sledge? We are family, right? Theme song of the 1979 Pittsburgh Pirates. Anybody? With those horrific uniforms with the like square topped hats or whatever those things were. We're family, which means we live as family. We take care of each other as family. We forgive like family. We care for one another like family. We, we forgive as family. We walk with one another as family. We are family. 
Jesus was the greatest servant of all, Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But Jesus is also King Jesus. And if I surrender my life to him and I cry out to him for the forgiveness of my sins and I'm made his son, I am a servant. I think Dave said this several sermons ago. There are no volunteers in the church. You realize that? That term should never be used in the church. We are servants who serve the king and serve one another. And so we serve with our time, our talent, our money. And the last is that we're baptized into the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a sending God, which now makes us what? I just said it earlier. Not family. Missionaries. We're missionaries. And so we go across the world. We go across the street. We go across the cubicle. So baptism is that reminder to the person being baptized that this is who you are in Christ Jesus, but it's also a reminder to us out here that we are called to live that with that person who's also being baptized. Brothers and sisters, baptism is a big deal. It's a big deal. And whether it's maybe your family that's holding you back, Maybe it's something that you, again, you, you were sprinkled as a baby, you did, but, but I have a hard time thinking that back then in that day you had a true understanding of what baptism was. And so if the eunuch says, what is preventing me from being baptized? I would hope for those of us in this place that have not been baptized for you to ask that question, what is preventing me from this? Because I want to be submissive to what God commands so that can be most effective for him. It says that Philip gets in the water and he baptizes him. And it says that the eunuch goes on his way rejoicing. And as I said, church historians said that this man was instrumental in taking the gospel to Africa. Indeed, Luke consistently shows that there are now no hindrances to receiving the good news of salvation, not age, religious tradition, race, or ethnic origin, or physical condition. It says that the Spirit carries Philip away, and Philip found himself preaching in Azotus and, and preached the good news to all the towns. See, Philip didn't stop. He was also submissive to the command to go and make disciples. What does this mean for us? First of all, do I see my life surrendered to the Lord and living on mission daily? I said this earlier, and we throw this term around busyness, right? We're all busy, busy, busy. You ask people, what's going on with your life? Oh, I'm busy. But brothers and sisters, oftentimes we use our busyness as an excuse to not be on mission. And what I want to encourage us this morning and challenge us with this morning is what is the Lord wanting us to do what the Lord is wanting us to do is have a heart posture of surrender that I see that I have mission right in the middle of my busyness. Lost people are right in the middle of my busyness. When I'm walking my dog, there are lost people. When I'm playing or watching sports, there are lost people right there. I'm watching my daughter's volleyball match, there's lost people. When I'm working out at the local gym, there are lost people right there. When I'm shopping, there are lost people right there. Brothers and sisters, we live in a busy world, and the good news is that God's mission is right in the middle of our busyness. And so the question is, how am I relationally intentional in the midst of my busyness? Are you abiding in Jesus so that you can be under the leading of the Holy Spirit? Question number two. How do I do that? I ask the Spirit for help. I listen for the Spirit's direction. I get into the Word of God and I obey what the Spirit tells me to do. And the last question for us to consider is, who is it that you believe the Lord is calling you on mission to? 
And I'm going to ask us, church, this week and in the weeks to come, for you to ask the Spirit of God, who is it that you want us to be on mission to? Would you show me? And what I did this week is I made a card for you. It's a little business card. It's called Five for Five. And on there it says, pray every day, contact weekly, bless monthly, invite to community group activities, or if you're not part of a community group, to other church family activities. And number five, share your faith. And on the back, there are five lines for you to write down as you are led by the Spirit, five names that you want to commit to. Pray for, bless, invite, contact, and share your faith with. And to take this and to put it in a, a special spot, maybe use it for prayer, tape it to your mirror, put it in your wallet, whatever it is. They're on the back table behind the sound booth. There's enough for everybody, and if we run out, I'll get more. But this is a little tool to be able to say, Spirit, would you show me specifically? Because when we walk out these doors, you may say, yes, Pastor Dave, we know, we know, we know, beyond mission, beyond mission. But to really be like, Lord, who specifically do you want me to be on mission to? For this season of my life that I'm really going to be praying for, being led by the Spirit to impact their life. And so there's these in the back. You can take one for yourself. Take it for your child, but I encourage you to use these. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the opportunity to be led, to be on mission, to walk with you. And Lord, that you do extraordinary things and great things. Lord, help us to behold you. Help us to love you and treasure you more than anything in this life. Help us, Lord, to, to know the word of God to know the story of God, to be able to speak that into our lives and into the lives of fellow believers, but also those, Lord, who don't know. And so, Lord, help us to be people who are surrendered, spirit-led, story-formed and submissive, obedient. And Lord, may that all come because we behold and love you and treasure you above all things. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Father, we come to you and we are so thankful that your word is living and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, I pray that we would be people who are obedient, surrendered, submitted, submitted to you. And Lord, I pray that we would be people that are on mission, that are sensitive to the leading of your spirit through your word, not our own power and strength. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.